All right. Do you ever have those moments where um, you got something? <laughs> you do have those moments? You have those moments where you have something absolutely set in your, your mind about where you're going and how you're doing it, and then all of a sudden you come to the moment and you go, I'm not sure this is the way it's supposed to be done. And you kind of throw everything into the wind. And I'm kind of in one of those moments, so you're going to have to kind of stick with me. I, I'm going to challenge you to do something, um, and it's going to require a little bit of mechanical work out here. I'm going to challenge you. First, we're going to get up and greet each other as friends and family of Missio Dei. And so in your getting up and greeting each other in the name of Jesus Christ, peace be with you, also with you kind of stuff, I want you to kind of turn your chairs towards each other. So you're like on two sides of the mountain seeing each other. I know it's kind of odd. And you're going to look at each other and you're going to feel, ooh, weird. I don't do it. Okay? So let's get up, greet each other, and kind of turn your chairs. It doesn't have to be perfect, obviously, but uh, greet each other and do some mechanical All right, let's not get too carried away. I know, seriously. All right, let's just kind of just kind of face each other for a little bit. Yeah. And, and you, you can kind of make it like a V, so you can still see me. You know, it's not all about you. Yeah, I'll stand. All right. And hopefully, is there a little bit of hmm going on? Okay. Um, make sure you have a Bible. Um, I mean, that's, that is critical as we gather together. Um, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And in... Let me, let me tell you a little bit about my, my, my week. My week has been, um, let me take this because I might walk and <laughs> we don't need stories about me falling. <sighs> my week has been, uh, for nine days, you know, uh, Laura and I have been uh, with the kids and we, we vacationed down in Florida and it was absolutely refreshing and encouraging. Uh, there's a glow, a tan glow, and you know, there's, there's something healthy about getting into the sun and um, escaping the, the grayness of Chicagoland because it's depressing. Yeah, you're welcome. It's a, it's a warm reminder from me to you. And um, while we were in 
Florida, we, maybe it was more me than Laura, I don't know, I said, let's, let's go to church. Because normally when we're on vacation, you, you totally vacate all your things, including usually church, right? And so we, we chose to go to a Presbyterian church, and there was some warmth and hospitality, and we, it was just good to get the mind going again um, while we, we were gone and away from you. And my heart that morning was, oh, okay, God, I'm praying already for Nathan, praying for Todd and the worship team, praying for you guys that as he's talking about uh, servants and uh, deacons and what, what does that look like and uh, what, what is our responsibility. Everybody is called to be a servant. There's yet some who are officially servants called deacons. And so how does that all work? Okay, God, make Nathan absolutely crystal clear, focused on the gospel, and it is that you get it. And then this week, we came back on Wednesday and Thursday night. Uh, Todd and I traveled all around uh, the Lincoln Way area. We traveled around northwest Indiana, handing out information about a band of brothers. And we had an opportunity to go into different churches, meet the pastors, see the buildings. And, you know, buildings sometimes reflect your theology, what you believe about worship. And it was, it was a really neat experience. We also experienced people uh, ringing. We had to ring doorbells to get into churches. Have you ever had that? You know, during the week, you, you ring the doorbell by the office, and it's locked up tight because they don't want people just walking in. There's a certain fear about who's going to come in and steal our pews. I don't know, but there's this, this fear about who's coming in. You know, one experience we had, the lady opened up the door about this much, and we're trying to talk to her and hand her some flyers. And she goes, well, you know, we've got to be skeptical of everyone. And I'm going, oh, dear God, no. And, and then I, I'm working through this text this morning that, about the church and, and what, what is the church and who is the church and what's the importance of the church. And so let me read. Let me read this. And it starts at verse 14, and we're going to go through verse 16. So it's a short little passage. But it is critical that we understand this. Paul is saying to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon. You hear it? I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Paul is telling Timothy, let me tell you about Christ, but let me also tell you about his church. Here's the main thing I want us to just to nail on. Maybe I just shouldn't use slides this morning. The church is important for this reason. The church is important because it reveals Christ. The church of Jesus Christ is important because it reveals Christ, even as Christ reveals God in the human flesh. So just as Jesus 
became man, not losing any of his deity, not being any less man than he was man, but as Jesus put on flesh, assumed flesh, and dwelt among us and walked, he was revealing to the world who? God. And in the same way, the church of Jesus Christ reveals to the world God. The church is absolutely critical. We we live in a time where the church is kind of considered this maybe social club, maybe it's used for uh, driving political agendas one way or the other. You know, the religious right, you hear about that, and you're uh, the the left, and you know, there's this battle between who's right and who's wrong, and it's, the church is really this vehicle for whatever political thing you believe. Some believe it's kind of this, it's a place for religious, preserving religious relics and uh, religious ideas. So it kind of has this museum kind of mentality. You know, well, the church is meant for preservation of, of our values. It's also meant to preserve our, uh, not only our values, but our liturgies, or our way of doing things. And, and, and Jesus, I believe, would say that the church is the most important force in the entire world today. The church of Jesus Christ is the most important force in the entire world today. And I want you to look at each other. You are the church. The church of the living God. A household of faith. You are the most important force because the Spirit of God dwells among us. So as Sarah looks over at Wendy, as family members, she recognizes that the Spirit of God dwells in her and in us and in such a way that it is transformative and powerful. You, us, together, along with all the local churches, gospel-believing churches, are the most important force in the world today. And its task is more important than all the governments and all the universities of the world combined. The task of the church is absolutely critical. And nothing compares to it. And it is that, the reason it is so important is because the most significant event in all of history was when the living God, when the living God took on human flesh and lived among us as Jesus Christ. He came in flesh to bear our sins. And since he has ascended into heaven, his church now reveals him on earth. Even as he was revealed here on earth. 
So the church is continuing. It's a continuing incarnation of God. Incarnate. We are the body of Christ. On Saturday we had uh, a leaders leadership community. The leaders leaders leadership community. And we talked about the importance of the body of Christ. And how uh, we, we, we looked at uh, 1 Corinthians 12, where it says, you know, the eye says, uh, well, since I can't be an ear, uh, I'm not worth anything. Since I'm not a hand, I can't be anything. It, it, Paul's theology of the body reflects what God came to do. He, he left the spirit to dwell within us so that we may do what? Reflect Christ to the world. And so our task is absolutely critical. And it's absolutely critical that you see each other as the church. Not me. Every Sunday, you, you, you all face very nicely, like in classroom order. You all face me, and you look at me, and you hear my voice. You hear the band, and we all sing songs to Jesus, and we all face forward looking... And we get this mentality that whoever is up here is really kind of doing the church work. We're it. But in reality, the work of the church is also out here. That together, I'm a piece of the body by my preaching and leading. That's a piece of the church. By singing songs and leading you in worshiping, focusing your your affections and your mind on Jesus Christ and singing songs of praise to Him. That is absolutely critical. Word and songs are important to our gatherings. But that is not the church. It's a a function, a thing that we do that is important. The church is here. Each other. This quote by David Watson says, It is the church that is willing to die to worldly standards that will know the power of Christ's resurrection. It may be envied for its depths of loving relations or for its spontaneous joy. It may be hated and persecuted for its revolutionary lifestyle exposing the hollow values and destructive selfishness of the society it seeks to serve, but it certainly cannot be ignored. When God reigns among his people, when God reigns among his people, they become a city set on a hill that cannot be hid. I wonder, I really wonder, and we've got to really wrestle with this. Is there God reigning in us? Is that just an idea that we go, hmm, that's a, yeah, God, Jesus lives in my heart and I'm a Christian. Does, does that change us in any way? Are, are we really willing to die to worldly standards? Seriously. Are we envied by the world for the depths of our loving relationships? 
here? What, what is the depth of Missio Dei's relationship with one another? Is it just this casual, hey, it's good to see you. I haven't seen you since last week. In fact, I haven't checked in with you at all. I love you. Or is there just a real deep love that we have? And then this next one, it's spontaneous joy. It is even our, I'm going to pick on the, the musical worship aspect. Is there any kind of spontaneous joy that we have when we sing light of the world? Light of the world. Step down into what? Darkness. You know, is there anything when you hear those words, you go, oh, Jesus. I give. Because I've forgotten again. I am so joyful that you became flesh and you stepped down into my darkness, into our darkness. So here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. I don't know when the last time I've seen actually a Protestant church bow down in worship out of just spontaneous joy and love and adoration. But we sing great love songs to Jesus, don't we? Jesus wants us as his people to catch a vision of the incomparable incomparable importance of his church and its role in our world, in our lives. Paul tells Timothy the purpose of his writing, and that was so that we know how to live together. He he tells us, man, I hope to come to you. I really hope to come to you, but, but if I delay... I'm giving you this letter and because I, I, I want you to get this because this is absolutely critical that you get this. And I'm going to start off by telling you this is critical because you are the household of God, you are the church of the living God, and you are a pillar and a buttress of truth. You've got to get that. Do you get that? Because if you don't get that, you're, you're missing something. But what we're going to do is we're going to do a little bit of working backwards. We're going to look at um, this... Uh, this little section in here, if you look in your Bibles, it kind of looks like it's uh, in poetry form. This was thought to believe to be part of a hymn of the, the early church, that a song that they would be singing to one another. And this song, it, oh my gosh, it is rich. It's short, it's sweet, but you know what it is? It's a synopsis of the life of Christ. If we could have songs like this today, written like this, Rich. Look at this. And it, it's broken down into, into about six different lines. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed upon in the world, taken up in glory. So Paul is saying, you know the song. You know who this Jesus is. And this is why you are the church of, uh, the household of God, the the church of the living God, and, and a pillar and buttress of, of the truth. Because this is Jesus. Let me, let me show you about who this Jesus is. He was manifested in the flesh. 
He was manifested in the flesh. If, if you go back to John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. And then it goes on to talk about how this Word from the beginning of times that hovered over the depths of the earth at creation, the agent of creation, God, Jesus, put on flesh. He, he assumed flesh, not losing any of his, his deity. Fully God and fully man. He came in the flesh. And this doctrine is absolutely critical. We cannot wait to Christmas to talk about the incarnation. About this cute little baby in a manger and we sing away in the manger and the kids, which was really wonderful, the kids program then coming up and singing these songs. We, we need to understand the doctrine of incarnation. Him becoming flesh. Him in the flesh all year round. This is absolutely critical. Some guys who wrote um, a book called A Theology of Church Leadership said this, the doctrine of the incarnation is distinct and unique to the Christian faith. Many religions speak of appearances of deities in the guise of men or animals, but these are appearances only. None take the startling position of Christianity Christianity, which affirms that the God who existed from eternity and who created all things entered his creation to actually become a human being. Yet, this is just the radical affirmation of the Christian faith. It is absolutely critical that Jesus Christ came in the flesh to identify with us. Because if he did not, we are still hopeless. Hopeless. But Jesus came. Light of the world. Came into our darkness. And offered us hope. He manifested in the flesh. Goes on to say that he was vindicated by the Spirit. And this sounds kind of weird language, but it literally means that he, he was justified or declared righteous. When Jesus came to the earth, he did not come as a mighty king, revealing the splendor of God. You know, it wasn't like when he was in a ba- you know, born, that all of a sudden, you know, there's a throne, and there's this glow and this hue about him. And as he, he didn't usher, you know, declarations from his manger that just, Stars, big ones. You know, he he didn't have that. He came. He took on the lowly form of a servant. Thus the ministry of the Holy Spirit was to declare Jesus to be the righteous one by attesting to his deity. When Jesus identified himself with, with sinners by submitting to a baptism, the Spirit justified him by what? Descending on him like a? Like a dove. And when he went through extreme humiliation on the cross and bore our sins, being numbered with the transgressors like us, the Holy Spirit declared Jesus to be the Son of God by raising him from the dead. If Jesus had been a sinner, then he would have had to die for his own sins. 
and God would not have raised him from the dead. But the fact that God did raise Jesus from the dead proves that he is the righteous one. So he is vindicated, he is justified by the Spirit. Then it goes on to say that he was seen by angels. Angels had this this wonderful uh, venue of watching this all take place. let, Let me give you at least six times in the Gospels. An angel announced the conception to Mary. Two, angels proclaimed his birth to the shepherds. Three, angels ministered to him after his temptation in the wilderness. Four, an angel strengthened him in his agony while he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Angels proclaimed his resurrection at the tomb. And there were angels at his ascension saying, why are you still standing here? What are you doing? You know what to do. So these angels attested to his his power, his strength, his deity all along the way. Then it says, he was proclaimed among the nations after the resurrection The Lord Jesus made it absolutely plain to his disciples that the message of salvation was not just for the Jews, but for the entire world. We are all familiar with Matthew 28. If you don't know what it is, you've heard it at least. Go, therefore, into all the nations. Go, get out of here. Because what I want you to do is baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and I want you to teach them all That you have observed. Everything that I've commanded you, I want you to teach them. Teach them this. Teach them that. Go. Get out to all the nations. Believed on in the world. This is the only means that God has ordained for every person around the world to receive the gift of eternal life. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And resurrected. There is no other way. None. No matter what other popular authors and teachers, and some are leaning more towards a universalist bent of just saying, God can't do that. God wouldn't do that. He's a loving God. He is a holy God. And He provided the only way through Jesus Christ. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father but through me. He's saying, I am the only way for salvation. I am it. Get it. Understand it. There's not many roads that lead to God. There's one path. And the beautiful thing about this is that God did not stay up on a hill for you to climb up a mountain to get to. God took on flesh and he came to you. He became man to identify with you. And then... He was taken up in glory. This refers to the bodily ascension of Jesus Christ. Bodily. Not just this kind of ghost-ish kind of thing. In the flesh. Taken up into glory. 
It is the crown, Matthew Henry says, the crown of his exaltation. And he is now seated at the right hand of the Father with all authority in heaven and on earth. And as the angels promise, one day he will return in the same manner as he ascended. Visibly, bodily, in power, and in glory. There will be a day, and it may be in our lifetime, who knows, a day where the trumpets will sound, the heavens will clear, and Jesus Christ will come back again in all His glory. And everybody will know. And at that moment, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This hymn packs a lot of theology. The incarnation, the life, the death, the resurrection, the commission, and the ascension. So, what do we do? Paul gives us three strong pictures of what the church is, of who we are. And the first one is a household of God. We are the household of God. When you think of those words, what do you think about? Throw it out. Household. What's that? Doors and windows. What else do you think of? People. Meals. Cleaning. (laughs) Parties. You got any family in there? Or is it just structures? You know, people. Relationships. Household. Hopefully it's a, a functional, healthy relationships in this household unlike any other. So if you come from a dysfunctional family, this is not what the household of God is looking like. However, we are quite dysfunctional, aren't we? Thanks be to God, we've been redeemed, and we are his people. In America, we we tend to kind of have this individualistic and goal-oriented mentality of what the church is. Don't we? Goal-oriented, well, okay, this, this year we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. We tend to see the church as an organization that ought to uh, have clearly defined goals and programs in line with those goals to meet our needs. Okay, we need a children's ministry, we need to have a hospitality ministry, we need to have an outreach ministry, we need to do this, because all these things have got to meet our goals. Go! well-oiled machine. But Paul starts off by saying, listen, you're a household. And a household of God. I read recently of a, an American missionary in Papua New Guinea who asked a native for the best route to get from one place to another. And the native, with a puzzled look on his face, replied this. There are all kinds of routes, my friend, he continued. We could go through the bush and visit some friends along the way. Or we could take the coastal route. The sun will be strong, but an old man lives there. And he knows many stores from World War II. 
if we take the road, we can talk with, to some members of my wife's family who live on the other side of the river. And the missionary got quite frustrated. American missionary again. Got quite frustrated with all this, this thinking. He just doesn't get it. I want the best route. A clearly defined point A to point B is not like this along the coastal. And then it hit him. The American idea of best was the most efficient, easiest way to get there. The Papua New Guinea idea of best was determined by the relationships he wanted to build. The household of God. connected by relationships beyond Sunday morning. And it, and it doesn't have to start with me. Okay? It starts by, man, this person's heavy on my heart. I, I need to call and seek him out. Or, hey, I just thought about him. You know, I'm going to send a text message and say, hey, I'm praying for you. Is there something going on? Hey, can we, can we go out for a beer? Can we go out for Chili's, can we go out for, you want to come over? What are you doing? How are you doing? I'd, I'd love to spend some time with you. Can I watch your kids? Can I hang out with you? Can I, what are you doing? It, it's household. It's family. And we need to modify our perspective of what the local church really is. And although the, as a household of God, the church is to reflect through relations the person of Jesus Christ who dwells in our midst. It's not by our values, our, our, our preferences. Ultimately, our household reflects the person of Jesus Christ who's a friend of sinners. <laughs> He's a friend of sinners. And that's a household we're called to be a part of. He was a friend of the most messy people in the world. Starting with Paul, who said he is the chief of all sinners. And that includes you. And the messy person that you, you're looking across at going, uh-huh. that one, really good? Next, he goes on to describe it as the church of the living God. He doesn't just simply say, it's the church of God, like a denomination, you know. But rather, he says, it's the church of the living God. And that changes the dynamics tremendously. That is, the church is the place where the living God actually dwells and is at work. (laughs) Do you hear that? That the church, we are, we are the household of God. We are the church where the living God dwells in us individually and corporately and does his work here with us, among us. If that doesn't get you excited, God bless you. Go in peace. But the church of the living God, he is here right now. We don't have to say, oh, Lord. 
come and I'm going to do a bunch of incantations. You're here now. Ding! No, he, he, Jesus Christ is here in our midst right now. If you, you believe in your heart and confess your, with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he was raised from the dead, he's dwelling in you and he's dwelling then in us. So our gathering, when we come together for worship, when we come together for worship, you should expect something absolutely amazing. I don't care if they're off-key or if my sermon stinks. You should expect something absolutely amazing because the living God is among us. Do you hear that? He, I feel like we're walking on holy ground right now, but we don't get that, do we? We don't, we don't have that Moses kind of mentality where he, God says, okay, you're coming to this burning bush that is really not burning, but it looks like it's in flames. And he says to Moses, Take off your shoes. For you are walking on holy ground. Do we, on Sunday mornings, our casualness of coming, is there any anticipation of a true encounter with the living God when you come here? Really? Did you expect that this morning? Or was it like, dang, we got to get the kids up. Or I'm running late. I, maybe I could still get a coffee. Or is there, let's giddy up. When the body gathers, we are going to have an encounter with the living God in such a way that is absolutely amazing. I can't wait. Honey, are you ready? Let's go. Let's call somebody else. Because, you know, our, our neighbor down the street, they don't know Jesus Christ. But maybe, maybe this morning we can invite them and they can have an encounter with Jesus Christ. Maybe the, the eyes of their hearts will be opened up wide. And it's like, and they can meet Jesus, the Son of the living God, and they'll get it. I'm not sure that we get it. And I'm not sure what we can do to shift us in, in, in understanding that we're the church of the living God, and He's, he's here. Among us. In fact, when two or three are gathered in his name, he is present in a beautiful, rich way. There's a story about a phone ringing in the rector's office. Uh, of a church in Washington, D.C., where the president sometimes attended. This is a few years back. And an eager voice said this, do you expect the president to be there this Sunday? I think I could get kind of excited, you know, if the president shows up besides my just political biases. But, you know, if, if I knew that the president at any time and all the secret service, all those people would be walking in this morning, I'd answer going, why, yes, he is. You know, just that kind of, and you should be here too, because the president is here. But what this, this rector said is this, that I cannot promise, but we do expect God. And we fancy it will be incentive enough for a reasonably large attendance. 
do you have that mentality? Seriously. Or is this a thing that you do? We need to expect the living God to meet with us. Now, break into our mundane world, our busyness, and meet with us as his children. And the world should also sense the living God is here. Dwelling amongst us and doing his work of reconciliation. And the last one is, Paul says, you are a pillar and a buttress of truth. In one sense, the truth is absolute and independent of us. This is God's word and it stands alone and it's independent of us. And God's truth, as revealed in Jesus Christ, is it is true whether we believe it or not, or proclaim it or not. It is absolutely true. But in another sense, the, tr- the church of Jesus Christ upholds and supports the truth. And my, my fear is that Sometimes we, we get more caught up into, um, get caught up on experiences and emotions and methods and stuff like that. We get all caught up in programmatic kind of stuff. But we're really weak when it comes to the theology, the, the depth, the truth. I'm gonna, this just popped into my mind what my wife said yesterday. And, and I think it's true with myself and I think it's true with everybody. We were driving, and yesterday I, I, I made a personal expenditure, which was just totally outside of our budget. I bought two packages of Oreos for $5. I was told just to go pick up some butter at Jewel. It called to me. I answered. You know? And one was double stuff. Um, and uh, and I, I shared that with my wife. And she goes, that wasn't in the budget. I go, yeah, we kind of back and forth, all kind of fun. And she, and I go, honey, it wasn't that much. She goes, I bet it was. I said, how much do you think it was? She goes, you went to Jewel? Five dollars, two for five. I go, you got to be kidding me. This is like psychotic. But then she said something very insightful. As I kind of harassed her, she goes, I want to know my coupons and my sales and stuff like that. I want to know the word of God like that or better than I know the coupons and sales. We know a lot of stuff about chiropractic and business and how to do this and do that. But how well do we know the truth of, that is found in, in the word of God? Quite poorly. Very poorly. And if you don't believe that, I would encourage you to read through what's called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And what the Westminster Shorter Catechism is, is the Presbyterian Church has adopted this as a, a way to teach their children the truths of Scripture. 
And in it, there are a, a total of 107 questions that they, they would teach their question, children questions and answers, back and forth. 107 of these. And let's see how you would do on this one. Question 33. What is justification? Just as if I had never sinned. Okay, that's good. But can we give it more depth? You know, if we'd ask the average Christian, what's justification? What's justification? I don't know. This is what they would teach their children. Justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardons all of our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. They teach that to their children. We are a pillar and buttress of truth. But yet we're so weak. Or how about this? What is sanctification? Question number 35. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. If my kids could do that, could you imagine what the next generation, the revival of them say, this is what by the power of God can happen in your life. You are justified by the work of Jesus Christ and his righteousness is imputed. It is given. It is placed into you and it is powerful. You are justified and you stand before the holy and living God on the day of your judgment. And God says, Well done, good and faithful uh, servant. You look like my son. If our children could understand that, the revival that happens, if we understand that, could you imagine what would happen in the household of God, in the church of the living God, if we understand the truths of the gospel, the good news? We need to get back to knowing Deeply, not just in a surface way, deeply God's truth. Not just being satisfied with, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's, that's nice. But it is a go in a deeper, richer, more vibrant, more transformative way. And hear this too. Doctrine is not merely to fill our heads with information. It is to affect our lives. Affect our lives. And the truth concerning God incarnate is transforming truth. And so the church acts as a pillar in support of the truth by putting the truth into our daily lives. So why is the church important? Why is the local church important? Why is it critical? Because God left it here. That should be enough right there. At Christ's ascension, he didn't just say, all right, we're done. He left the church here. He left it here to reveal his son to the world. 
And as the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the, church, of the truth, we are the current expression of Jesus Christ in the world until He comes again. You are the current expression of Jesus Christ to the world and to each other until he comes again. You are the current expression of Jesus Christ to the world. Until he comes again. Do I need to say it again? My wife says no. You say yes. I hope this sinks in. I hope this sinks in. Our master died. He's raised from the dead. Ascended to the Father, leaving us the most important task in this world to finish His work, to proclaim His great salvation among the nations, to do it, to do it, we must commit each one of us, every person sitting here. must commit ourselves to a living relationship with the living God. A living relationship with the living God. We must commit ourselves to one another as members of God's household. Members of God's household. Commit to one another. First we commit to the the living God in a living relationship. And then we commit to each other in real life-on-life kind of relationships that are deep and complex and ugly and messy, but yet beautiful and redeeming and powerful and transformative and contagious and just it just bubbles over. And we must commit ourselves. We must commit ourselves to know and live by and defend God's word of truth. But now, what does this mean? What does this mean? And literally I'm putting it out right here. What does this mean for Missio Day Church? For you. How about start you personally? Instead of just saying, the church needs to do this. How about we start with you? What does this mean for you starting now at 12 after 11? Go. Build meaningful relationships. hear that? Go to church expecting God to work.
not back down. Hold firm. Uh, keep talking till the whole world hears. Embrace. Invite others into your household. Paul even says, pray without. <laughs> yeah. What else? Yeah, go beyond your community. Go there for. Orland Park and beyond. Get rid of boundaries. Fear of the Lord more. Fear of the Lord more than a fear of man. Say that again. There's a what's that? Know God's word. So there's an overflow. And not just our mouth, our our hands, our actions, where we go, what we do. Anything else? There's no one kind of religious way God works. He works in every. How else? <laughs> Not be surprised if you're persecuted. In fact, Paul does a lot of, uh, he has a good theology of suffering. Practice what you preach to you. You love your brother. <laughs> okay, do you hear this? This is what family does. And this is how we work. And I'm going to tell you, we are imperfect. And if you're looking for the perfect church, good luck. Yeah. But this is how we've got to work out our faith with fear and trembling before a holy God, quorum Deo, before the face of God. Say, God, okay, I don't get this. I don't understand this. Help me. Help me. I'm feeling weak here. Take it, God. Do this. Take that. Knowing that every week, every day, we fail. Every day. Every moment. But the power of the gospel has penetrated from the moment of justification to the day of our completion. And he'll be faithful to complete it. And that's the beauty of the gospel and the power that is seen in the church. As we prepare for communion, 
I think we need to remember again the gospel. Remember the gospel. And it's not just that one moment of Jesus on the cross. It is, He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the whole world, and taken up in glory. This is the good news. And as we remember this, we remember that we are works in progress in need of this good news, of this Savior who came in the flesh and is now seated at the right hand of God Father Almighty. And from there, what? Anybody know the rest of the Apostles' Creed? From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. So, this is good news. Let's pray before we go to communion. Jesus, we come to you expectantly. knowing that you are God and that even before the foundations of this earth were laid, you knew that today we would be here talking about this very topic, your church. And God, expectantly, we, we trust that you will change our lives, our mentality, our, how we think about the church and how we think about you. Lord, we need to be honest that this week we have thought honestly very little of you. Very little. After that, we repent. Lord, change our hearts and our minds. Again, we we come to the cross knowing that you died once and for all and that it is complete and effective for us today in our shortcomings. Lord, I pray that by the power of your Spirit, That we do not cling to our weaknesses. We don't cling to our our, our preferences, our, our sins. So that grace may abound. Lord, that we die to ourselves. Again. And again. And again.